I wasn't sure if I should even examine today's case. While sifting through all the available research, I kept asking myself, what can I learn here? Who can I help? It's a story about love, dependency, defiance, drugs, and greed. At first, it was hard to tell whether there were any victims in it at all. Until I looked at the margins and read between the lines. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet Art and Margaret Williams, an unconventional pair who lived on a remote, sprawling property on Vancouver Island in the 1970s. After Art built his hallucinogenic drug empire, they both disappeared a year and a half apart from each other. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Art Williams is born in 1924 in a town outside of Bristol, England. Growing up, he doesn't have the easiest childhood. His mother dies when Art's still young from a tumor that bleeds out. It's a terrible tragedy that could have possibly been avoided. Art's father reportedly dismissed his wife's health concerns. He thought her problems didn't warrant professional care until it was too late. After his mother's death, Art is raised by his father, a World War I vet, and his grandmother, both of whom are strict disciplinarians. His father in particular apparently has a notorious temper. From a young age, Art learns to fear his wrath and resent authority. After dropping out of high school, Art follows in his father's footsteps. He enlists in the British Army at 18 and serves during World War II. He develops this image of himself as the consummate outsider. He loves talking about how he was once incarcerated as a teenager for breaking the rules of traditional society, even though according to Art's sister, that's not entirely true. What actually happened was, he went to a convenience store late one night tired. He accidentally fell asleep eating some cookies he hadn't yet paid for. When the owner found him, they called the police. It's not the only time Art plays fast and loose with the truth. As an adult, he courts women by bragging about how he escaped German capture in the war. 
how he was one of the first soldiers to storm Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp. He even says he became really good friends with author George Orwell during the war, which his friends seemed to buy, until one discovers Art doesn't know that George Orwell's real name is Eric Arthur Blair. Suddenly, his lie is exposed, but rather than fess up, Art flies into a rage and shames his friends for questioning him. In his mind, he has to be right, especially when he feels like he's up against anything he considers the establishment. And this habit follows him throughout the rest of his life. After being sent home from the war, Art immigrates to Canada. In Alberta, he meets a waitress named Margaret MacDonald. I couldn't find much information about Margaret before this moment. As far as historical records are concerned, her story starts when Art enters her life. Art and Margaret marry in August 1949, and eventually settle in Ladysmith, a small village on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Art gets a job as a carpenter at a pulp mill. He works to pay the bills while Margaret takes care of their home and sprawling property. For Margaret, island living is lonely. She doesn't get much human interaction beside her husband. She'll occasionally sell a knickknack to a tourist or spend the day with Art's sister, Ruth, but that's about it. Eventually, Art gets tired of his job at the mill. He takes a risk and quits to become an entrepreneur. He invents a new style of bow for hunting. He considers a bow and arrow an honest weapon and launches his own archery manufacturing company. The gamble pays off, his business is a success, cash is rolling in, and soon he takes out a loan to expand his operation. Everything's going great. Until Art's anti-establishment attitude comes back to bite him. In 1969, the Canadian government sends him a notice saying he owes $57,000 in back taxes. In his adult life, Art has paid property taxes, albeit begrudgingly, and sometimes in coins just to be difficult. But he's apparently never or rarely paid federal income taxes. He doesn't believe in them, and he doesn't plan to start paying now. After receiving the notice, rather than pay his debt, Art declares bankruptcy. So the government seizes his warehouse and stores. To minimize his losses, Art apparently tries sneaking back into the warehouse to steal back as many valuables as he can. But when authorities find out, they charge him with theft of federal property. And Art still doesn't seem to care. He claims to have burned his financial ledgers in protest. It's a symbolic gesture that doesn't do anything to get him out of the hole he's dug himself into but he still manages to find a way out anyway by hiring a lawyer crafty enough to get him off the hook. The trial ends. Art avoids any prison time and he still leaves feeling bitter. And he directs his anger towards someone who is seemingly a bystander to everything, his wife, Margaret. He seems to think Margaret ratted him out to the feds. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this is frankly ridiculous. I'm pretty sure the Canadian government wouldn't need to be tipped off. Even if they did, it doesn't make any sense. What would Margaret stand to gain from throwing her husband under the bus? It seems more likely to me, based on what happens next, that Art wanted to make an enemy out of Margaret, because rather than confront his wife, 
Instead, he goes home, packs a bag, and moves into a rental duplex right next door with his 28-year-old girlfriend and her two sons. Now, the timeline on when Art started this affair is unclear, and I'm not sure whether it's his first, but I do know that when he moves in with Shirley Ferguson, he's 17 years older than Shirley, and the decision absolutely crushes Margaret. She loves Art, and now she has to see him all the time, with a new woman and a new family. To add insult to injury, Margaret always wanted to have kids with Art, but they never did. Margaret and Art legally separate in July 1971, but Margaret decides to stay in Ladysmith, despite her new neighbors, the isolation, and a complete lack of apology from Art. As author Daryl Ashby wrote, quote, with all the pain and humiliation Arthur had given her throughout his relationship with Shirley, Margaret never once repaid his indiscretion with malice." End quote. Now, Margaret's decision to stay may not be one that I'd make for myself, but apparently Margaret feels close to Art, closer to him than anyone else in the world. In the aftermath of their split, they find a way to make their relationship, however platonic and unorthodox, work. Art even builds Margaret a cabin on the property to live by herself. It's unclear how the dynamics between Art, Margaret, and Shirley play out on a daily basis after this. But life for all three quickly goes off the rails. With his archery business sunk, Art starts obsessively researching and growing oyster mushrooms of all things. He finds out there's a big demand for them because they're such a nutrient-rich food. So he applies for another new business loan with the Canadian government. And despite his past, they actually bite. In fact, they think his new idea is so promising, they lend him $70,000 to build his new operation, the British Columbia Institute for Mycology. From what I understand, it's like a science lab meets a school meets a farm. The facilities are huge, and by the time it's finished, the place is filled with thousands of dollars of equipment dedicated to studying fungi. And to anyone walking through, the place seems totally legitimate. Because in many respects, it is. There are biologists conducting real research. But hidden deep inside a large barn on the property, Art builds a fortified room that few people know about. To get there, you have to navigate a homemade maze, rumored to be complete with booby traps. There are spring-loaded doors, locks woven in intricate patterns, you name it. Inside is another laboratory where Art conducts top-secret experiments and apparently cooks MDA. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's the early 1970s. Counterculture is alive and well in the United States and Canada. 
psychedelics are in demand, and Art Williams is assumed to be making and selling MDA. MDA isn't so popular today, but you've probably heard of MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy or molly. MDA is similar to MDMA, but it can also have hallucinogenic effects. Art thinks he's practically untouchable. He has a secret laboratory. He can use his oyster mushroom research business as a front. He even bankrolls his whole operation with government grants. In this time, he earns himself the nickname, the Wizard of Ladysmith. By the summer of 1972, the Canadian police called Mounties noticed something. Large shipments of isosaffrol being sent to Nanaimo, a town north of Ladysmith on Vancouver Island. This raises red flags. Isosaffrol is a key ingredient in manufacturing a number of different illegal drugs, including MDA. So investigators track the packages to learn who the recipients are, only to find out that they are all associates of art, someone who for obvious reasons has been on officials' radar before. But art makes it hard for authorities to act on this information. He somehow catches onto their suspicions and starts conducting all his business in coded language. He also stalks his lab and home with police scanners so he can listen to investigators' movements. As a result, he always seems to be one step ahead. As Art's paranoia spirals, I have to imagine Margaret and Shirley are at a loss for what to do. They might be aware that he cooks and distributes MDA, but it's hard to say whether they're accomplices, just living in a world entirely controlled and manipulated by Art, or if the truth lies somewhere in between. Regardless, their life threatens to unravel sometime in the mid-70s. Even with Art throwing wrenches in their plans, the Mounties think they've gathered enough evidence to press charges against him. They include conspiracy to traffic MDA, trafficking MDA, and possession with intent to traffic. But in the end, nothing sticks. Authorities acted too quickly. At trial, a judge decides there's insufficient evidence. In 1975, all charges against Art are dropped. Art manages to escape prison for a second time, but he's not out of the woods with the law yet because apparently he hasn't learned any lessons from his past. Even after everything that happened with his archery business, even though he doesn't want authorities to dig into his last venture, he now owes the Canadian government over $64,000 in unpaid taxes. He's been given so many second chances, personally and professionally. And yet he runs down a path that will most likely destroy him and everyone he claims to love, all because he thinks he can outsmart the feds. He evidently keeps cooking MDA with a new strategy, small pop-up labs, and his team's pretty good at it. According to one of his coworkers, if they needed to, they could tear down a lab and clean up everything in just 20 minutes. Eventually, he creates so many of these pop-ups that it doesn't matter if he loses one. He has plenty more scattered around Vancouver Island in remote areas. If he suspects the cops are surveilling him, he'll even use explosives to blow a site up himself. But what he doesn't know is, the Mounties are improving their own tactics. And by 1977, they send in a mole to take down Art's business from the inside, Agent E-752, 
whom I'll call E7. E7 manages to infiltrate Art's manufacturing operation. Art doesn't fully trust E7, but it doesn't ultimately matter because E7 makes it far enough to supply Art with gel capsules for packing MDA. This becomes important when in August, 1977, the Mounties obtain a warrant to search Art's property in Ladysmith, as well as the Institute of Mycology. At first, authorities don't find anything to incriminate Art, but then they find a rigged staircase in a barn. They travel down through a maze of trapdoors and unique locks and find his secret lab. Inside are the same gel capsules E7 had given to Art. After more than five years, authorities finally have what they need to go to trial and win. Art's arrest makes headlines in Vancouver, but almost everywhere else, it's overshadowed by another story, the death of Elvis. This works in Art's favor. He doesn't want to be front page news. He doesn't want to have to deal with the court of public opinion. He wants to quietly bail himself out leave custody, and wait until his trial starts. And that's exactly what happens. After he's initially denied bond, Art and his lawyers lobby the courts until one set at $10,000. He coughs up the money and goes home, an ostensibly free man with plenty of time to kill. And rather than spend that time with Shirley or Margaret or anyone else in his family, Art takes to the skies. Art's a recreational pilot, and true to his character, he completely disregards standard protocols. According to the federal agents tasked with keeping tabs on him, he leaves Canadian airspace, switches off his transmitter at random intervals, and lands without permission. He also insists on flying his small four-seat Cessna plane even when the weather is bad and it's dangerous. Now, you'd think this sort of behavior would be connected to the looming threat of potentially spending 10 years in prison, but Art was apparently always this reckless in the air. Before his parole, he once allegedly flew into Cuban airspace without permission, only to get intercepted by Soviet fighter jets. So it's hard to say what he's thinking or why he logs so many flights, but he continues to take these joyrides right up until the weeks surrounding his preliminary hearing. It's November 29, 1977. At home, Art pours over case materials, searching for anything that could help his defense. He has one last meeting with his attorney, Sid Simons, tomorrow in Vancouver. As night falls, he calls an associate, Ray Ridge, and suggests they fly to Vancouver together. But the next morning, Art calls Ray back. He's acting stranger than usual. He assured Ray that he can stay home, and take care of that something he's been occupied with all week. Art's speaking in slang, but his something is most likely business related to their MDA operation. Ray pushes back. Whatever needs to get done, Ray doesn't think it's too pressing. But in the end, Art agrees to let Ray drive him to Cassidy Airport. And that's it. He flies alone. In Vancouver, Art gets picked up at the airport by his lawyer, Sid Simons, around 11 a.m. They basically spend the rest of the day in Sid's office strategizing. By the time they finish, it's almost 9 p.m. And despite the rainy weather, Art wants to fly back home. So Sid drives Art to the airport. 
Along the way, he overhears a phone conversation between Art and his girlfriend, Shirley. Art asks Shirley to have Ray Ridge light some kerosene lamps along the runway at Cassidy Airport. Without them, it'll be impossible to land. When they reach the tarmac, Sid says goodbye to Art, watches him climb into his Cessna, and start the engine. He drives away, assuming he'll see his client back in court. Meanwhile, inside a control center at Vancouver Airport, an air controller named Norman Daner gives Art clearance to take off. He watches Art's plane take off, then turns his attention to his radar screen. Art's blinking red dot travels over the Strait of Georgia, the channel separating Vancouver Island and the mainland. Weather conditions often decline after leaving the mainland, and visibility tends to be low at Cassidy Airport. So Norman tracks Art's movement to make sure he lands safely. For most of the short flight, Art's plane seems unbothered by any weather. Then, around 9.15, the air traffic controller watches as Art's red dot turns around suddenly. When he radios in to ask what's happening, Art says he's having problems. Shortly after, the dot on the radar screen starts spinning into tighter and tighter spirals. Norman checks in again. For about 20 seconds, there's no reply. Then Art's voice screams into the receiver. I'm out of control. And the blip on the radar screen disappears. Back on Vancouver Island, Art's girlfriend Shirley waits for him to come home. As she does, Art's associate Ray Ridge arrives on her doorstep with news. Art's plane never landed. At first, Shirley reacts dismissively. She tells Ray to go back to Cassidy. Art's probably just running late, and he'll need a ride when he gets in. But then she receives a confusing phone call from the Vancouver airport. A representative wants to know if Shirley has any idea where Art is. As far as Shirley's concerned, they're the ones who last saw Art. When she hangs up, she calls a local radio station, curious to see if there's been any news about her boyfriend. They tell her they've received a breaking update. It's about the man she loves. According to the report, Art's plane crashed. It's unclear whether he survived. Word eventually reaches Art's estranged wife, Margaret, and the news sends her into hysterics. But when Art's sister, Ruth, finds out, she has a much different reaction. She's not sure he crashed. Knowing her brother and his schemes, she wonders if Art staged his disappearance, possibly by turning off the radar on his Cessna and flying low to avoid being detected by air traffic control. If he did, it wouldn't have taken him long before he was out of Canadian airspace. The suggestion doesn't sit well with Shirley or Margaret. Margaret reportedly tells Ruth she doesn't know what she's talking about. Of course he crashed. Meanwhile, Canada's Ministry of Transportation launches an investigation. They determine Art's airplane most likely went down at 9.29 p.m., near where the Fraser River dumps out into the Strait of Georgia. By 10 p.m., a Coast Guard team arrives by helicopter. They search the area, and within 20 minutes, spot the seat of a plane floating in the water, along with some unidentifiable debris. Another Coast Guard helicopter arrives shortly after, followed by a Royal Canadian Mounted Police ship. Sometime after midnight, 
officials find two aircraft logbooks floating in the water, as well as some more debris, including cigarettes, cabin lining, and a fuel receipt with Art's name on it. But they don't find any definitive proof of a plane crash. In the early hours of the morning, first responders retire, and officials send a second team to canvas a nearby island. They find a few scattered items that could belong to Art, but there's no way to be sure. They never find a plane or a body. Convinced Art's plane crashed though, Margaret asks for her ex-husband to be declared legally dead just a few weeks later. This would allow Art's will to be enacted. Margaret would receive any money or property he left for her. Now, I just wanna say conversations around wills are difficult to have and they tend to attract conspiracies. In this case, it's been a month since Margaret or anyone else has heard from Art. No one has found evidence to suggest he's still alive. I imagine Margaret just wants to close the book. But regardless of her intentions, Margaret really never got a chance to enjoy those assets because shortly after the inquest into Art's death is conducted, Margaret disappears too. On March 6, 1979, Shirley Ferguson notices Margaret's car hasn't moved from its spot in over a day. And she doesn't remember seeing Margaret's house lights on recently. Shirley calls Art's sister, Ruth, to see if Margaret's staying with her, but Ruth says she hasn't heard from Margaret. Concerned, Ruth goes to Margaret's house to check if she's okay, but she's not there, and her purse and coat are missing. Wherever she is, it seems Margaret planned a return. Her fridge is full of food. I imagine that after this, Ruth leaves worried about her friend and former sister-in-law's well-being, but it's unclear whether Ruth or Shirley ever get in touch with police. All I can say is a month reportedly passes before the police declare Margaret missing, and there's no indication that a serious investigation ever happened. The best I could find is this quote from a local police sergeant at the time that reads, there is not an abundance of evidence to indicate one way or another, whether Mrs. Williams left on her own volition or otherwise. The lack of police response is odd because researchers like Daryl Ashby have been able to gather some compelling evidence that paints a pretty clear picture of what could have happened to Margaret. Admittedly, it's all circumstantial, but ahead of his trial, Art reportedly gave $90,000 to Margaret and Shirley to split. He said it was in case anything should ever happen to him which could mean a number of different things. But Margaret apparently kept the $90,000 locked away in a case she kept well hidden. And according to Shirley, the case went missing two days before Margaret disappeared. Around the same time, two other important events happened. First, Margaret called her sister Rose out of the blue and told her to take good care of their dad. The call seemed random at the time because they didn't speak often, but in hindsight, Rose felt like Margaret was saying goodbye. And second, around the same time, Shirley's son Terry thought he saw Margaret's silhouette in the window of her cabin. She didn't respond to his calls though. Then as he walked away, he noticed a pickup truck parked outside, which he considered strange. 
It's possible Margaret's visitor was one of Art's associates, someone whose name has come up a few times already, Ray Ridge. Shirley told Daryl Ashby that Margaret and Ray never got along and that she believes Ray and his brother would have been, quote, crazy enough to knock her off. What's more, Shirley remembered a deep well that Ray had on his property that was only filled in after Margaret disappeared. Then two years later, Art's lab and barn went up in flames. Authorities suspected arson and Ray Ridge reportedly predicted the fire the night before it happened. Now, for me, the question of what happened to Margaret comes down to whether or not Art staged his disappearance. Some believe he did, that he came back for Margaret, that they then went into hiding together. And there is a case to be made that Art survived. The former head of the Ladysmith Police Department once said, anyone who really knew Art thinks he didn't go down in that plane. I could never buy it. It seemed too simple a fate for him. Neither his body nor his plane have ever been found. Authorities could only locate materials that could have easily been jettisoned during a flight, either accidentally or on purpose. Plus, according to some accounts, Art practiced flying low to avoid government radars and made a point of asking his lawyer which countries didn't have extradition treaties with Canada. He also may have had experience parachuting from planes in World War II, not to mention, his sister claims he once told her an elaborate story about how he would fake his own death with a plane crash. While I can maybe believe Art intentionally disappeared, I have a hard time believing he came back for Margaret. It seems too out of character for me. He never prioritized her. Personally, it feels far more likely that he left her money because he felt guilty about everything he put her through the position he put her in, and left her in the dust, aware that she may have been in danger with his associates when he was gone. And I think Margaret knew she was in danger. Even author Daryl Ashby believes there's substantial evidence indicating the Mounties left the file on Margaret Williams open for possibility she was murdered. I think that's why she called her sister. There's this temptation for some to admire and glorify people like Art Williams. In broad strokes, he's this anti-establishment drug kingpin who possibly evaded the law by pulling off a death-defying vanishing act. If this were a Hollywood film, it would be an action movie with Art as the protagonist. But have you ever sat in a theater and watched a bunch of buildings get blown up in a main character fight sequence and wondered, what about all the people inside? I'd encourage anyone to bring that perspective to more stories, especially true ones, because Art and Margaret Williams aren't characters. And when we give all of our attention to the men who build empires, we lose sight of the collateral damage they create. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. 
Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. I'd like to point out Daryl Ashby's book, 85 Grams, which was crucial to provide insight into this story. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, Nora Battelle, and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.